Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Hey, if you have a Bible, Acts chapter 14 this morning, Acts chapter 14, with a, with a message entitled, The Gospel in Galatia. And as you're turning there, I don't know if you guys uh, had a chance to see the easels out in the lobby. You see the School of Ministry poster board, and then you see the, the uh, Calvary Chapel Christian School 2024, September 2024 coming up. Want you guys to uh, just keep that in mind, uh, that you would be praying for these particular ministries, discipleship ministries. You know what happens when uh, churches step into discipleship, don't you? The enemy uh, comes, right? He tries to stifle the word of God going forward, but we're not gonna let that happen because regardless, we're gonna press forward, but we need to be prayerful, amen? So I would encourage you, man, pray for the leadership as we uh, make decisions relating to these two ministries that we have coming up. Uh, we need God's help. These are God-sized things that we can't do on our own. So, you know, we would really encourage you to join us in prayer as we look to see the Lord move through these two ministries. If you uh, feel like you would e like to be equipped better in, in biblical things and um, feel like maybe if you're a guy and you've, you feel like you want to go on, the, feel like the Lord's calling you into ministry, the school of ministry would be a great track for you to join. We'll have more information for you there. And also just for the uh, Calvary Chapel Christian School, there's so many details that we still are putting together. And uh, I got an exciting announcement coming up in a couple weeks, but we'll, we'll get to that. So Acts chapter 14, and uh, stand with me. We're going to read the word of God this morning. Beginning in verse one, it says, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided some sided with the Jews and some with the, the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews and their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities in Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we are privileged to be here. It's such a great uh, thing that we have come to gather, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And Father, we want to quiet ourselves before you, that you would speak to us, Lord. You're in this room. You're the center of all that's going on here. Lord, will you reveal yourself to us in deeper ways? Will you help us, God, to hear you this morning and not just to hear, but to be willing to obey you? And Father, we pray for surrender in this place this morning as it relates to you, your word, your Holy Spirit. It's in your son's name we pray, amen and amen. You can be seated. How many of you guys would agree that we live in a day and a time in which the world is hostile towards the gospel? Anybody believe that? The world is hostile towards the gospel? It is, and in fact, in our country, uh, America is hostile towards the gospel. Do you know that? 
uh, you know, we live in a Christian culture, and so we don't, we don't necessarily feel it the same way other people do, but we still feel it, don't you? Don't you feel it when you begin to talk to somebody about Jesus, how that becomes a little awkward and sometimes hostile? And the next thing you know, people don't want to talk to you anymore. Why? Because you're the Jesus people. Because you are, uh, you know, you're not going with the flow. Well, guess what? We're not called to go with the flow, are we? Listen, you will face hostility when you stand for the gospel, and I don't care where you live, folks. There is a spiritual war going on all around us. And so we have to understand these things. And I want you to know this morning that if you have faced hostility, you've lost relationships because of the gospel, uh, you've had, you know, maybe even job promotions taken away from you because you stand for Christ, that you're in good company. Because the church of Jesus Christ has always stood against the hostile culture that we've been planted in. This is the early church. This is all that the early church was doing. Whenever you bring up Jesus, I don't care when you've lived, from day one, his name has been taboo. Paul said it like this to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and fully to the Gentiles. The early church knows what it's like to face hostility towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't mean to make light of the things that you've experienced in your walk with the Lord and trying to bring the gospel into a hostile culture, but my guess is that it's not near what these guys faced. The, the, the gospel cost these guys their families. It cost these guys their livelihoods. Uh, it, it cost these guys, many of them, their lives. And so they can speak on behalf of the persecuted church about hostility towards the gospel. The book of Acts is all about this, folks. As the gospel is going into hostile culture, how, you know, the, the, the disciples don't succumb to the culture. They stand firm in the faith, pushing the gospel forward at, listen to this, all costs at all costs. Uh, Jesus told uh, th these disciples that that is what it was to be. It didn't even tell us something about like, hey, take up your cross and follow me. What he means is take the gospel into the world at all costs. That's what he means. That's why he said it. The, these guys, these guys in the early church, they are not willing to be silenced for their own safety. They're not willing to be silenced for the sake of themselves. They understand that they've been given a command by Jesus Christ called the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." These are the marching orders from our chief and com our, our commander in chief, Jesus Christ. And they apply to everyone who is in the faith. Whether you're part of the early church or you're part of uh, the postmodern church here in America, it doesn't matter what, what uh, generation or what era you live in, you're called 
to the same command to go into the world and make disciples. Notice there's no exclusion clause here. It doesn't say, go and make disciples so long as it's safe for you. It doesn't say, go and, and make, make disciples as long as you're comfortable with it. No, no. It, it doesn't say any of those things. We're called, we're not called to be risk averse relating to the gospel, folks, trying to find the safest route. We're called to be bold in our faith and to stand for Jesus Christ. That's what the Great Commission is all about. It doesn't mean we throw Jesus in everybody's face, but it does mean that we stand for him, and that at times will create what's called confrontation. It will create confrontation. And, it's, and it shouldn't be in any of your intention to create confrontation, but the gospel itself creates confrontation. Paul told us earlier, like I said, it's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's fully to the Gentiles. We live in a Gentile nation. How many of you have been told that Christianity is foolish? Probably many of you have. A couple of you are paying attention. That's awesome. But this is participatory. So, hey, I, I've been there. You, you don't have to get that excited about it. But please, you know. Uh, but, but, but that's the reality, folks. Jesus has called us not to be comfortable, not to play it safe. He's called us to, to bring the gospel into the culture that we live in at all costs. Listen, this is not radical Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. This is, seems radical to us maybe, but it's not radical. Jesus started this whole thing and he's calling us to do the same thing. The early church knew that it was the gospel in the culture at all costs. And that's why they prayed early on in the book of Acts this prayer, that when we came across it, we all spoke these words, if you were here. Acts chapter four, verses 29 and 30, but I can't help but now believe this is the foundation of the book of Acts, this prayer right here. Listen to what it says. They're faced with a hostile culture. And he says, and they prayed, this was Peter and, and the gang there in Jerusalem. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. And grant to your servants uh, to continue to speak your word with all boldness uh, while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your uh, holy servant, Jesus. This was the prayer of the early church, and this is what we see through the entirety of the book of Acts. Listen to what they prayed for. Boldness and that God would use them as vessels to work miracles through their lives. Boldness and that God would use them as, as vessels to do whatever it is that he wants to do. They did not pray for protection. They were in a hostile culture. They didn't say, God, will you protect us, Lord? Will you help us keep us safe, God? Keep us comfortable. No, they said, make us effective, God. Give us the boldness that we need to stand for the faith in this culture that is hostile towards us. Help us not to cower is really the prayer. I wonder if this shouldn't be our prayer. Shouldn't it? Shouldn't be this, this be the prayer of every Christian to ever live? This prayer right here, God, make me bold. Make me bold in the faith, Lord. Use me to 
uh, do miraculous things in and through you, Lord. Do whatever you want to do. I'm available to you. This is the call uh, that Jesus calls all of us to. Notice here, it's not by title. Lord, make the pastors bold. Make the elders bold. No, make us bold, Lord. Every one of us. Make us bold, God, that we would be used by you. And by the way, I don't think I don't think all of the miracles that were performed in the book of Acts were not necessarily just by the apostles, folks. God uses everybody in the body of Christ. It's the spirit of God. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that that gives us the gifting that we're called to go into the world and utilize that gifting to bring glory to Christ. This was the mentality of the early church. They were bold and they were available and God used them. What can God do with you? What can he do with you? What can he do with me if we will be these kinds of people that will pray this prayer of boldness and availability to be used by God? The gospel, guess what? As a result, was going forward. The gospel was going forward from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now to the ends of the earth. The gospel, uh, these guys are fulfilling the great commission. Why? Because they had to? Was this a duty? No, no. They were devoted to Jesus. And they were trying to be effective for the Lord. As we encounter chapter three, as Paul is taking now the gospel from Antioch of Syria, the launching pad of all missions work, uh, to, we saw last week, Antioch of Pisidia, this is Paul taking the gospel into the region of Galatia. This is literally him going into to the ends of the earth. This is the beginnings of all of the gospel going forward into the ends of the earth. And of course, we still experience that today. The gospel is continuing to go forward into all the earth. But Paul started it right here. And when he, he and Barnabas were commissioned in Antioch of Syria and the Holy Spirit said, separate unto me, Paul and Barnabas, and they went forward and they are fulfilling the calling and they faced hostility immediately when they hit the land over there in Perga. Check this out. They didn't turn and run away. If you read the last part of Acts chapter 13, it says that the Jews begin to stir up persecutions amongst the people in the city and listen to how it ends here this you know they're faced in a hostile society that's what it's all about but listen to what their response was and the disciples were filled with joy and with the holy spirit and the disciples were filled with joy and the holy spirit that is the response to a hostile culture folks in the early church were filled with joy they counted it all joy to suffer for Christ. We saw that early on, Acts chapter four, Acts chapter five. Peter and John, they're being brought before the Sanhedrin twice. You guys stop speaking in the name of Jesus. No, we can't do that. We're not going to do that. And they were, they were in a hostile culture and yet they were filled with joy and they counted it joy. Remember when they went away after they'd been beaten? by the religious leaders? Man, this is what happens when you give yourself to Jesus wholly and you don't hold anything back. You're able to have a joy that is insurmountable. You're able to walk in joy in all circumstances when you give yourself to Jesus. 
like this. They were filled with joy despite the persecution that was being stirred up against him. And they believe, moving forward, that, that this stuff is not over. They know they're heading deeper into hostile territory. But they're willing to risk it all to be faithful to Jesus. Now, as we come into chapter 14, and the gospel is moving forward in the region of Galatia, there's six words that describe the effects of the gospel here. The first is division. Division, look at verse one. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So that's great. A lot of people believe, but check this out. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Don't think that when the gospel goes forward in a culture that it's gonna go forward unchecked. It's not gonna go forward unchecked. There will be hostility towards that and immediately they're faced with unbelieving Jews that are saying, we're gonna stomp out this gospel message. So they remained for a long time. Isn't that interesting? They didn't run away. They remained for a long time in the midst of the hostility even though the unbelieving Jews were poisoning the minds of the believers there, telling them whatever they had to hear in order to stir them away from the Lord. But they stayed a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness uh, to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Doesn't that sound just like what they prayed in Acts chapter four, verses 29 and 30? That they would have boldness and that God would work miraculously through them? That's exactly what's happening, folks. Do you know that this becomes what I believe the anthem of the entirety of the book of Acts, boldness and miraculous works. God is doing that through the disciples. As I said earlier, what can God do through us if we surrendered in this way? That we say, God, make me bold and use me however you want to. But the people of the city were, here's the word, divided. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When the gospel goes forward into any culture, there is a potential for division to happen. It doesn't matter if it's in your own home or in your workplace or in your community or country or the globally. Uh, you know, there is a division that's created by the gospel. Isn't it interesting that the gospel message is the message, the only message, by the way, that can reconcile a sinful man to a holy God, but at the same time divides man upon man on the horizontal? Isn't that crazy? That's because the enemy understands the power of the gospel. And that's why the apostle Paul said in Romans chapter one, uh, verses 15 and 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. I'm not gonna hold back the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power unto salvation. It's what brings a person from eternal damnation to salvation. It's the only message that can do that. And so you can expect it to bring division in your family, in your, your friends, your circle of friends, and your co-workers and all of these sorts of things. Jesus said 
the gospel would bring division. He said in Luke chapter 12, verses 51 through 53, do you not, or do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, uh, in, in one house, there will be uh, div- five divided, three against two and two against three. There will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. That is just normal. That's just, we just call that, that's not spiritual warfare. That, no, I'm just kidding. Some of you are going, yeah, that is true. Well, we'll pray for you, but... Uh, but, but, and, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Listen, what Jesus is saying is you can expect the gospel to divide man to man. You can expect it to divide relationships. Um, and, and, and so uh, the division that's created here uh, in Iconium is to be expected. It's something that they, they, they understand and I wonder if it boggles our minds sometimes when we are faced with divisions as a result of standing for Jesus and trying to help people understand that they're sinners and they need a savior. Jesus Christ is the one. But Jesus said these kinds of things will happen because not everybody's excited and wants to receive the gospel, folks. As, as Paul said earlier, to the Jew, it's a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, it's fully. And so we can expect these things. But that doesn't deter Paul and Barnabas. They stay there for a long time. I don't know how long that is. That sounds like a long time because it says a long time. But what I know is what are they doing there? Even though there's persecutions happening, they're discipling these people. Why? Because they're going to be left there. This is their home. This is their culture. How do I reach a hostile culture? You, You get yourself into the word of God and you let the Holy Spirit begin to speak to you and then he will use you in a hostile culture. Paul and the apostles are, uh, Paul and Barnabas are pouring into these people regardless of what happens until, notice the word, until there was an attempt that was made by the Jews and Gentiles uh, and their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them and then they fled to Lystra and Derbe. Uh, You know, they didn't flee because they were afraid for their lives. Do you know Jesus told them to flee for the sake of the gospel? To flee for the sake of the gospel. In other words, I'm I'm certain that the apostle Paul would have just said, take my life, do it. I'm ready to go. That's how how this guy lived. And in fact, if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you see this litany of persecutions that the apostle Paul, uh, you know, experienced. Why? Because he was a guy that was willing to stand in a culture that was standing against him. That's why. He was willing to be a vessel for Jesus Christ at all costs. And you know what? He was, he was attempted to be killed many, many times. He wasn't afraid to die. He wasn't afraid, he wasn't fleeing because he wanted his safety. He was fleeing because the gospel had to go forward and he was the vessel that God had called to go to the Gentile nations. This is the will of God at work. And so Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, uh, verse A, when they persecute you in one town, what? Flee to the next. Why? For the sake of the gospel. 
so that the gospel can continue to be going forward. That was the purpose and that was the call and they understood that. And so that brings us from the division now to the healing that we find in Lystra as they flee to the city of Lystra. Verse eight, now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, look, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. Lystra was a city that the apostle Paul was incredibly fond of because this is the city where his protege Timothy would come from. It was uh, Timothy's uh, mother and grandmother, Lois and, and, and Eunice, that were there, and Timothy uh, lived in Lystra. And uh, what, what we know about this is in, in, on, on Paul's second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16, when we get there, we'll see that Paul will call Timothy to himself, and he'll say, I want you to come follow me. I want to teach you. I want to disciple you. You're going to become my protege. And then the book of Second, First and Second Timothy is written to Timothy from Lystra uh, as Paul encourages him to stay the, fa- stay, the, stay the course, to continue to walk in all the things that he had uh, discipled him in. Timothy becomes his disciple. That means that perhaps Timothy got saved on his first missionary journey, or at the very least, we know that his grandmother and his mother got saved, and then Timothy got saved somewhere in the midst of that. But he was there. Think about that. Timothy was there as Paul passes through Lystra for the very first time, and all that happens here, you can understand it. Paul, Paul said about Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 5, he said, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. So at some point, Timothy got saved. What we know here is as Paul is passing through here, there's a man that is crippled from birth, like he has never walked before. His entire life, he's been crippled, and uh, he's sitting there listening to the apostle Paul preach the gospel. How do we know he's preaching the gospel? Because it just said he was preaching the gospel. It said the gospel's continuing to go forward. What does the gospel look like as Paul is speaking it? Remember, he's going into territory where, where Gentiles don't know anything about uh, the Old Testament. They don't know anything about these things. So he's, he's gonna be speaking probably in very broad language, but also if he's speaking to Jews very specifically. He's talking about a Jewish Messiah named Jesus that God promised to come to reconcile man to himself, that he would become the savior of the world. So he's, he's, it's very plain and very simple language that Paul is talking about. He's probably, uh, you know, utilizing a lot of the testimony of Jesus Christ and the fact that Jesus had healed people, that he had raised the dead and all of these things. And that was all prophetic to be spoken about the Messiah so that God had foretold that when Messiah came, he would do these things. And somewhere along the way, as Paul begins to talk about a crucified and risen savior of the world, he looks and he gazes over and it says that he sees faith on the face of this man. He sees faith in him. What does that mean? It's, it's to say that this guy had already received what Paul was saying. Like he was full on belief, like I believe in this Jesus. 
And if, I, if Jesus can do these things for somebody else, then I believe that Jesus can do these things for me. I think that's what it's speaking about. And Paul sees faith in this man. And what does he do? It says he tells him to stand up and, and he tells him to rise to his feet. And it says that he sprang up and began walking. Now you gotta understand, this has to set this crowd off. Like what in the world just happened? What in the world just happened? First you come here speaking about this Jesus who heals, who can uh, change my eternal destination from hell to heaven, who can wipe my sins away and not just make me clean, but make me righteous, make me perfect in him. And now I see the effects of this gospel in a tangible way upon this man who's never walked before. Now, it says that he had faith, and of course, it is about faith. It is about believing. It is about not doubting what God can do in your life, but it's not all about that, is it? If it was all about that, then it would mean that we're totally in control of what God does. That God is, has to be miraculous on demand based on how we believe. Does that sound like the Bible to you? That doesn't sound like the way that God works in my mind. There definitely has to be faith. And we've been talking about this as we're moving through the book of Acts and we see miracles happen. We believe in the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit today. We believe that God is doing all of these things. We believe that God can and is capable and at any point he can do any of this. There has to be faith but it also has to be matched with his will. It has to be matched with his will. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. And so when we encounter situations and, we, and what do we do? We face it with faith and then we trust the will of God. That's how we handle these things. We face it with faith. We ask God for the unbelievable and then we trust with whatever he responds to however he decides to work because he's doing something in the midst of all everything that we will go through in life. And we might not understand it all on this side of heaven, but I promise you, when you get to heaven, you'll understand the goodness of God in every circumstance that we've gone through. He is good and he's at work and we can trust that he is doing things in our lives. We may not be able to see it, but we can trust it. In this particular instance, this man has faith and it's the will of God. So boom, this miracle happens. And, and, and now uh, the apostle Paul's message that he had been speaking is now validated. Everybody in the room knows that there's power in this man and the things that he says come to fruition. Stand up and walk and that happens. What he says they can trust. So check this out. In, in, a, in a Gentile church that is full of Greek mythology, what ends up happening is uh, they want to worship Paul and Barnabas now. Look at verse 11 where we find the exaltation. And when the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down for us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and uh, wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds. And so after this man is healed, immediately uh, the thought goes to what is called 
the legend of Listeria, Lystra, or the legend of Lystra. And that, that legend is this. This is what was recorded by a Latin poet 50 years prior to Paul and Barnabas going there. They said that Zeus and Hermes had taken on human form and visited a thousand homes in Lystra and seeking hospitality, and they didn't find any until they came to the home of an elderly man and a wife. And so these, these two took in Zeus and Hermes, and they were uh, then the only ones to survive the wrath of a flood that destroyed Lystra as a result of the city rejecting these false gods. And then it was supposed that their cottage then was converted into the magnificent temple there, and they became the priests of the temple. So this is what the people of Lystra are thinking. When they see this miracle and they begin to speak in their own language, which Paul and Barnabas apparently don't have the gift of uh, interpretation of tongues here because they don't know what they're saying. And they're, they're crying out, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And they're, they're calling Barnabas, Zeus, and Paul, Hermes in their own language. You can imagine being Paul and Barnabas in this, in this situation. They have no idea what's going on. And they're just like, man, these people are super friendly. Look at them. They really like us, man. The, the gospel, they're going to receive it all in. They have no idea what's really happening until the priest comes trucking down and he's like, let's sacrifice to these guys. And at some point, it makes sense to Paul and Barnabas uh, what's happening. Look at verse 14 and it says, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. They sacredly, scarcely, whatever. There you go, you have it. I was like, that doesn't sound right, but anyway. Uh, literally, Paul and Barnabas, when they see this happening, they tear their clothes. This is blasphemous. This is blasphemous, and I don't care what culture you live in, when man is being worshiped, it's blasphemous. So they tear their clothes and they're, 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 they tell the people, no, 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 no. Don't worship us. Don't you wish people in the church would say that? Like, don't worship me. You're not worshiping me, but you know what I'm saying. I'm saying that. Don't worship man. Don't worship your spouse. Your spouse, hey, newsflash makes a terrible God. Terrible God. Your children, terrible gods but the God of heaven he's the right God worship him and him alone do not worship us we're of like manner we're the same as you don't worship us in this way listen God brought us here he goes on to say to bring good news to you to bring the gospel to you because you're un, you're in the unknown here you guys don't understand that Zeus and Hermes don't exist. And if, if there are any manifestation of idolatry whatsoever, it's demonic. 
What you don't understand is that there is a living God that you must turn away from these vain things and turn to him. What does that mean? You have to repent of these vain ways is what he's talking about. He's saying turn away from them and turn towards the living God. That's what the gospel should produce, folks. It should produce a turning away and a turning to. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes lives. That's why if anybody's in Christ, he's what? A new creation. All the old has passed away. Behold, all things have become what? New. New. You're not the same person. You've turned away. There's been a change of mind. You're not living the same way. Now you're living for Christ. And Paul is telling these guys, listen, turn away from these vain things, from these, this idol worship. And then he goes on to speak to them in the only language that they will be able to connect dots with, and that is creator to creation. And he goes on to tell them, listen, the God that, and Paul did this in Athens too on Mars Hill, he spoke to them in the same language that they would understand. He talks about creation to help them bridge the gap because they're not Jewish. They will not understand the Jewish prophecies, even though there are some Jews in the mix. And he will no doubt uh, you know, connect the dots for them. But he talks about first and foremost, turn your hearts to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. We have a creator. And he sticks to that message. You don't have to have a complicated message, folks. When you go into the world and you begin to speak to people about the Lord, you tell them, listen, we have a creator. We have a creator in heaven. And you know what? God set the world in order. And he didn't just take his hand off it. He's intimately involved in all of the details of it. And he is allowed man to live in his own ways. That's what he says here to them. Because why would God allow evil things to happen to good people? A, number one, there's no good people. And A, number two, God has allowed the man to live however they want. To a point. To a point. He has allowed the depravity of man to be on display. God has allowed man, but he didn't do it without witness. He didn't do it without witness. What does that mean? It's what Paul said in, in Romans chapter one. He talks about all you have to do is look around at creation to see that there is something way bigger than us, something way bigger than us. And man wants to, wants to try and uh, you know, explain it away in these theories uh, that we drum up, like evolution and these kinds of things. And Paul says, man, it's super simple. God is creator, and you can look around and see his handiwork. Where does the rain come from? Where does the fruit from the trees come from? Where does everything around, how do you even sustain yourself? Where does life come from? And he begins to just speak to them in this way. And it seems like maybe he's making some headways until the Jews from I. Antioch and Iconium show up. This is where we find the provocation in verse 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having pre, uh, persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So the Jews who were frustrated with Paul and Barnabas 
in, in Antioch, in Iconium. They now ha- somehow make their way to Lystra. How they knew they were there, I don't know. They probably just went from one town to the next and said, did you see these two dudes come through here? Talking about this crazy Jesus guy. We're looking for him. Oh, they're down in the next town over. So they follow them. This is, this is like an, listen, this is like an 80-some-mile journey from, from Antioch. I mean, talk about getting your steps in. I mean, that's, that's like over the top here. I mean, most people in this culture, in this day, you know, they, they walked about anywhere from 20 to 40 miles a day. 20 to 40 miles a day. These guys, in a day and a half, two days, they were from Antioch all the way down to Lystra. And now they're there and they walk into a worship fest and they're like, what in the world is going on? Let me tell you about these guys. And it tells us here that they begin to persuade the crowds. That word persuade means they begin to convince, they begin to win the crowd over. How do they do that? How do they do that? They didn't do it with miracles, which is, which is interesting that they would be able to be persuaded even though they saw a miracle happen right before their eyes. That goes to show you that miracles do not produce faith. They help with the message, but they don't produce faith to believe. And here's what ends up happening is they start to deceive the crowds. And the crowds are so fickle that they turn on a dime. They go from worshiping to want to kill the apostle Paul and Barnabas on a dime. And that's how easy it is to sway a crowd. The art of persuasion. So simple. And the enemy is an expert at deception. And what we don't see in the text is Paul and Barnabas trying to make a case for themselves. Don't you think that's interesting? If you were there, wouldn't you be saying, whoa, 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 don't, don't listen to those guys. Would you try to persuade the crowd? to preserve your life? They understand what's at risk here. Here's what I'm thinking. And this is based on the testimony of the Apostle Paul, is his confidence is in God, not in the flesh. He tells us in Philippians 3.3, put no confidence in the flesh. Have no confidence in the flesh. Yes, that means in your works, in your capacity to work your way to God, but it also means in every capacity whatsoever. I'm not able to sustain my life Sure, I can eat right and I can avoid certain things and all these kind of things, and that's just wisdom. But I cannot add another day to my life. You know why? Because my life is in his hand. And nothing can take me from his hand. And if you're in Christ, your life is in his hand. You are literally, um, you know, to some degree, don't step in front of a bus or anything, but you are, you know, you're, why can't I think of the word? You're in the... Indestructible. There you go. That'll work. That wasn't what I was thinking, but that'll work. Indestructible, do you know, in Christ until the Lord calls you home. That doesn't mean we, and I'm not talking about being foolish, but I'm talking about operating in your normal realm because guess what? Your numbers, your days are numbered and it's in his hand. And when he calls you home, you can't do anything about it. When he calls you home, you're going home. And that's why we want to be faithful all the days of our life. Because none of us know when that, when that day's coming. We think we do, but we have no idea. The Apostle Paul 
my life is in God's hands. And he leaves it in God's hands and he allows the, the Jews to persuade the crowds and the crowds shift in an instant. And it goes on to tell us here that they dragged Paul out of the city and he got stoned, not like you in college, but he got stoned in a different way with real rocks and everything. You know, what? I didn't say you got, I don't, you're, hey, you're putting this on yourself. I'm not trying to bring anything up about your college days, but, and you know what happens? He, he, gets, he gets what they believe to be killed. They believe they've killed him. His persecutors stone him what they believe to be to death. Now, this leaves us with the question, was he really dead? Was Paul dead here? It says that, I mean, Luke is a doctor and he's meticulous in the way that he writes and he's written tons of miracles already in the book of Acts. If he was talking resuscitation like Lazarus here and that he was actually dead, wouldn't he have just said he was dead? But it says that, that they supposed he was dead. That to me says there's a question whether or not he was dead or not. And perhaps really the bigger issue is it's not even about that at all, but it's about what Paul does as a result of the persecution in the first place. Many people will say Paul was dead, and you know what? This points to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, where he talks about, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he goes on to talk about this experience that this man has in heaven. I believe firmly that Paul's talking about himself because in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians, uh, first, yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he goes on to say that God has given him a thorn in the flesh to keep him from being conceited because of the vision that he had seen. And so it's probably, he's talking about himself in third person in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. The problem is that 14 years prior to Paul writing this book would have put this particular account at AD 43, and it didn't happen, and his first missionary journey didn't happen until AD 48, so the time doesn't line up. What that suggests to me is that we don't know. And guess what? When you get to heaven, you can ask him, hey, dude, were you really dead in Lystra? Did you really die? Or were you just like not moving like you're supposed to do with grizzly bears so they stop stoning you? What was going on there? What we know is this, that Paul was left for dead. And then it tells us the disciples gathered around him. Now, I want you to capture this picture. These are new believers. These are new believers that are the disciples. When he's talking about this, we're not talking about Peter and James. They're in Jerusalem. He's in, he's in uh, Galatia. They're far away from him. We're talking about brand new believers in Christ that are now watching the person that preached the gospel to them laying in a pile of stones, bloodied and bruised. What do you think they're thinking? Hey, is this gonna happen to me? Is this what's happening? Is this is how this is gonna go? And then, they, or maybe they're praying, but then the rocks start to move. And Paul gets up and he is bloodied and bruised. I don't think you can be stoned and supposed to be dead unless you're pretty battered up. Think about it, the swelling on his face and all this kind of stuff. He goes, all right, let's go back into Lystra. And you're like, what? Go back into Lystra? Oh, but he, they were praying for boldness, right? 
They were praying for boldness and for God to work in miraculous ways. So Paul does the bold thing. You want to talk about impactful. You want to talk about seeing something that maybe Timothy was there when Paul stumbled into the gates and there he sees the apostle Paul bloodied and bruised and he comes back into the city and he's like, now let me, now where was I again? Let me tell you about Jesus. Could you imagine? Man, I was gonna say this is where David Goggins got, you don't know me, son, but I didn't say that. Here's what I know is Paul understood his purpose and he was not afraid to die. He went right back into town because that is how you make impact with the gospel in a hostile culture. You don't cower from it. Yeah, there's times to flee for sure. And of course they do that for the sake of the gospel, but there's times to go right back into the middle of the battle and to stand firm in your faith and say, look at me. I stand for Christ. Jesus died for me and I'll die for him. Now let me tell you about the Lord. And then it says the next day, Paul went on with Barnabas to Derby, some 40 miles southeast of Lystra there, where we find the exaltation. Look at verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to, the, uh, to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many uh, tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders from them in every church, they prayed with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord to whom they had believed. So Paul and uh, Barnabas go into Derby. they preach the gospel, many people get saved. Uh, that's all we know about what happened in Derby. They went in there, the, the gospel went forward and people got saved. Paul turns right around and goes right back up the same way that he came. Like you think like, well, why wouldn't he go, you know, like make a loop or something? You know, why wouldn't he go to, a, to other cities within Galatia that hadn't heard the gospel yet? Why would he go right back up the gut the same way that he came? You wanna know Why? Because there's a bunch of brand new believers there that need strengthening of their souls, that need encouragement to continue in the faith, that need to understand that they're gonna face hostility as they live for Christ. That's why he does that. He turns around and he goes right back around to, bring, to disciple these people who are, who are um, newly found in Christ. He's helping them understand, listen, you need strength. If you're gonna walk with Christ, you're gonna need the strength of Christ. So you gotta lean on him. You gotta press into him. You gotta keep walking with him. He tells them you gotta continue in the faith. I know it's gonna be tough. There's gonna be questions that you have. You're gonna be faced with situations that you don't understand, but you continue in the faith and you're steadfast. And then he goes on to tell them, this is the reason why. Because through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What Paul is saying is, hey, it's gonna be hard. It's gonna be difficult. There's gonna be a lot of pressure, tribulation, pressure, uh, you know, involving also persecution. This is something that Paul passes on to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
Now that word all there, you know what it means? Hello, all. It means everybody, past, present, and future Christians. Everybody's gonna experience persecution. It may be not the same exact persecution, but you will face, Jesus said, in this life you'll have tribulation, didn't he? But be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. We have nothing to fear. Whether it's persecution, tribulation, it doesn't matter. We know that it's gonna be difficult. When Jesus said, when you enter the gate onto the narrow path, he says, listen to this, difficult is the way. Difficult is the way. God has a specific yoke for you, but, and, and, and it's easy and light, but the path is not simple. It's gonna be difficult. You can expect uh, some pushback. You can expect, expect some hostility. You can expect these things in the Christian life, but you don't cower away. You press forward and you don't give up. And that's what he's telling these guys. These guys need to hear this stuff. They need to understand that they're not alone, that God is with them. But yeah, times are gonna get tough. But when, when times get tough, you suck it up and you press into the Lord. Now you can't have this kind of mentality uh, if you're not really genuinely on a daily basis seeking Jesus. You'll never have this kind of mentality. You know, but this is the kind of mentality we need. You know, because the reality is through many tribulations, we all of us, we must enter the kingdom of God. And then it goes on to tell us that Paul appoints elders here. Now remember, this church is newer and he's appointing elders already. Some people would be indignant with that. They'd be like, what? That guy's only been walking with the Lord for a couple years. Hey, let me let you in on a little secret. It doesn't matter how long you've been walking with Jesus. What matters is how surrendered in that walk you are to Jesus. That's what matters. What matters is not the length of the years. Well, Jesus isn't gonna say, well, well, hey guys, this guy's been walking with me for 50 years. Well, well done, good and faithful servant. That's not what he's gonna say. If you weren't good, you weren't a faithful servant, is he? Because it's all about being faithful. It's all about maturity in Christ. It's about really walking with Jesus on a daily basis, not about how long you've done it. Paul goes on to tell Timothy, Timothy, I want you, I'm gonna, don't be timid in your youth. Why did he say that to him? Because in this culture, youth was intimidating. If you are a young person going in and speaking to these elderly men in the Jewish faith or whatever, you weren't considered wise. You were considered like, eh. But Paul said, don't be timid of your youth, Timothy. You're mature. You're probably probably more mature and you have a better understanding of the Messiah and all of these things than the religious leaders do, than the Sanhedrin do. It doesn't matter how long you walk with the Lord. They appointed elders, not haphazardly or hastily, by the way, but through prayer and fasting. They, they set themselves up to the Lord and they said, Lord, separate unto us who you are calling to these positions. And they chose these people based on the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter three, Titus chapter one. That's, Paul is the one that writes these things. He writes the qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter three about, hey, this is what an elder looks like. So he's thinking about, Lord, who do you want? And I'm sure there were some duds in the selection, folks. Because there always are. Because God bets on us doing the right things. 
And God calls us to things and he gives us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Even when we fail, isn't he good that he could still use any of us for anything? And yet he allows these people to step in. And Paul and Barnabas, they appoint the elders here in the church. They dedicate them to God. They commission them to the churches and say, these, this is your leadership. You look to them. And then they leave. And, and now they're on their way back to Antioch of Syria to their home base church. And this is where we find the declaration finally in verses 24 and 28. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia, Attilia and from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. And now he had opened a door of, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with these disciples. So long story short is at the end of the day, they make their journey back to the place that they themselves were commissioned, they were set apart with. And you know what happens? They make declaration of what God has done. They gather the church together and they tell them all that God has done. And I want to tell you something that this is, this, I believe, is sorely missing in the church. This is sorely missing in the church where we do not share the stories of the great things that God has done in our lives. And, you know, you might think like, well, we don't really have opportunity to do that. We do have opportunity to do that. We have prayer and prayer, prayer times. We have, uh, you know, times where we set aside prayer and worship times. We have, uh, all, all, we have afterglow times where we just set aside and it's really just waiting on the Lord to do whatever. But here's what I want to tell you. I'm going to give you an invitation today that if God has done some great thing in your life, uh, let's say next week God does some great thing in your life and you're like, man, I really feel like I should share this. You come tell me or you tell one of the elders of this church about it because we want to make room for the, the, the body of Christ to be encouraged in what the great things that God has done. We do not praise him enough for the great things that he's doing in our lives. Yes, the word of God's gonna continue to go forward and all these kind of things, but dude, we need to hear the practical examples of how God is working greatly in the lives of normal people. This is what we need to do. This is a biblical thing. They gathered together the whole body of the church, not just some of the church, but they gathered the church together and they encouraged the church based on what? Their testimony of what he had done through their lives. And we may not have anything to share, which should suggest something to us, right? We should probably be thinking like, but we don't wanna make things up either, but we wanna be genuine and we want to give God the glory you know, I mean, honestly, like I'm in a lot of prayer meetings and one of the things that we don't do enough of is praise him for what he's doing. Where's the answered prayers? Where's the praise reports? Let's praise him, man. Let's give him glory, not just on to the next thing. What have you done for me lately, God? But let's praise him for the things that he's done now. And that will encourage the body of Christ to be bold and available to Jesus, I promise you. Do that. Be willing to make the declaration of the great things that God has done in your life. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.